Well, good morning. Um, I appreciate Pastor Jonathan giving me the, the opportunity to preach uh, this morning. Um, but real quick, before we uh, jump in, I do uh, want to uh, make... Uh, one quick announcement um, uh, about Upward this year, our Upward Basketball and Cheerleading League. Um, this year we have uh, about 40 to 50% uh, more kids uh, involved in Upward than we've ever had at any other season up to this point, um, which is awesome. And that's awesome because most of those kids are uh, from families like right here in our immediate community. And we want to be a church that's reaching our immediate community. And so this is an awesome way. Uh, upper basketball and cheerleading is one of the, the best ways for us to be able to, for an extended period of time, pour into uh, families uh, in our immediate community that, that otherwise may not, uh, for the first time, step foot on our church property. So it's an awesome opportunity where for basically for two months, we just get to week in and week out, share the gospel with these kids and, uh, and their families through the avenue of basketball and cheerleading. Um, so that's super awesome, but that also means that we need a few more coaches because we have more kids this year. Um, so as of right now, we're, we still need uh, two more head coaches uh, for basketball and a few more uh, assistant coaches. So um, I just want to throw that out there. If you if you are able, the time commitment is just Thursday evenings and Saturday mornings. Um, and some of those, you won't even have to be there for all of those. Um, but uh, I just want to make you aware of that. If you're able to do that and can help us out, um, either come see me and let me know or call our church office uh, this week. Uh, so this morning, we're going to start out in Nehemiah chapter two. So you can go ahead and turn there. Um, we're not going to camp out in this passage. This is kind of, we're going to cover a large portion of, of the Bible this morning. Um, but this is going to be kind of our jumping off point. But as you're turning there, um, this week, whenever I was uh, uh, preparing and uh, studying this passage, um, it, it reminded me of a conversation that, uh, that I had a couple of years ago. It was whenever Emily and I were uh, engaged, and we've been married for a couple of years now, but this is back when we were engaged. And uh, like whenever you're engaged, like it's, it's one of those seasons where there's a lot happening. It's like exciting and stressful all at the same time. And there's a, there's a lot going on. But one of the other things I remember about that season was you have a lot of interesting conversations with people. You know what I mean? Like whenever you get engaged instantly, everybody, you know, immediately becomes a marriage expert. Right. And so you have, you have a lot of conversations with people. Some of them are good and helpful. Others are less good and helpful. Um, but I remember one conversation in particular that we had was with an older lady that we knew and she, she was a sweet lady, but in this conversation, she, uh, she comes up to us and she's like, Oh, congratulations. I'm so happy for y'all. You know, I've, I've been married for 50 years and, uh, and you know, I remember back when I was engaged, you know, it's such an exciting time. And she, she said, it's kind of like, like waiting for Christmas, you know, there's all this excitement and anticipation. And, and she said, and then you get to your wedding day. And she said, and it's kind of like whenever you get to Christmas and then, once you like get through Christmas and, and it's, it's behind you, then you're just left with disappointment. <laughs> and she stopped. Like that was the end of the conversation. I remember sitting there and I'm like following along with her. And then when she got to that point, I remember sitting there going, Oh, she's done. Okay. And like, that was the end of the conversation. So she just like left us on this like cliffhanger of anticlimactic disappointment. That's where she left us like out of 50 years of marriage. Apparently that was the, the, best she could give us. Um, by the way, that's not what Emily and I experienced. Just FY, just for the record before I get in trouble. Okay. Um, but that's, that's kind of the way the, the part of the Bible that we're in right now for this morning, the, the, where we're at in the storyline of the Bible, the story kind of goes that way. It, it, it starts out as hopeful and exciting and optimistic, 
But then ultimately it's going to end on this cliffhanger of just anticlimactic disappointment. So on that happy note, let's look at Nehemiah 2. Um, so before we read, just a quick uh, note to kind of orient us with where we're at in the storyline of the Bible. Last week, if you remember, Pastor Jonathan Priest on the book of Esther. So if you remember, Esther was married to King, Arde, or King Xerxes. Who, he's uh, the Persian king at the time. What we find out here in Nehemiah is that Nehemiah is the cup, he's Jewish, but he's the cupbearer for the Persian king Artaxerxes. Okay, so Esther's married to Xerxes. Nehemiah is, is the cupbearer for Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes is the son of Xerxes. So the, the guy that he's the cupbearer for, this is Esther's husband's son. Got it? Okay, so go ahead and stand with, uh, with your Bibles open. Uh, and we're going to be in uh, Nehemiah 2, uh, looking at the first eight verses. This is Nehemiah talking. He says, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you're, seeing that you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was much afraid. But pause. In chapter 1, Nehemiah found out that the walls of Jerusalem were broken down. We're going to talk later about why that's important. Okay, keep going in verse 3. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, why, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Notice he, he prays before he gives an answer. Verse 5, and he says, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's gaze, graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, with the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let, the, let, let letters be given to, given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates and the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. So he's asking for, for passage and, and supplies. It says, and the king granted me what I was asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. You can have a seat as I pray. Dear God, um, I pray as we, as we dig into uh, this part of the storyline in the Bible that um, you would grow us through it, that we would not just grow in knowledge, but that we would be changed, that our hearts would, would look more like you, and that ultimately um, that we would have a bigger view of Jesus this morning um, in a way that would transform us. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so before, before we dive into this, um, we need to lay some, some groundwork for understanding what's going on in the, in the story of, of Nehemiah. So today we're wrapping up our, our gospel thread series. Um, and so we're, we're finishing with the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, which essentially closes out the Old Testament. Okay, now, if you're paying attention to what I just said, you might be like, wait, what did you just say? Because like in my Bible, Ezra comes before Nehemiah and they're two different books. And it looks like we're only half, it doesn't look like we're anywhere close to the end of the Old Testament. It looks like we're only halfway through. Well, there's a couple of things to remember about the way that the Old Testament is organized. And these are important for understanding the story accurately. The first thing is there are some books in our English Bibles that are split up into multiple books, but were originally one book together. So an example of this would be like First and Second Samuel. Originally, it was just the book of Samuel. And later, essentially because like scrolls get really like big and large when you write a lot on them, they basically split it up so they have two smaller scrolls. It was more manageable. So that's why you have First and Second Samuel. But it's actually just one book, the book of Samuel. Same thing with First and Second Kings, same thing with First and Second Chronicles. Another example of that is Ezra and Nehemiah. In most of our English Bibles, they're split up, but the, it, it was originally written as one book, okay? 
that's important for understanding what's going on. Because if, if you read Nehemiah without ever reading Ezra, it's like if you read the last Lord of the Rings book without ever reading the first two. Like, you'll, you'll kind of get what's going on, but you, you really won't fully understand the storyline and the main point of what's actually happened. So that's the first thing. Second thing, remember, the Bible is not laid out 100% in chronological order, right? We, we have books, the way that it's organized is you have certain styles or genres of books that are grouped together, right? So you've got all of the kind of narrative historical books grouped together. And so those are the ones that just tell you what events happened throughout the history of the Bible. So it's like Joshua, book of Samuel, Ezra, Nehemiah. So all, those are all put together. Then in the last part of the Old Testament, you've got all the prophets, right? So from Isaiah to Malachi, you've got all the prophets put together. So that is what they're writing, what God is saying to his people while these events are happening, right? So if you put it chronologically, you basically take these prophecy books and you kind of sprinkle them in to the narrative books and that puts them, puts them in chronological order. Okay. So Ezra and Nehemiah, chronologically, it's the last narrative book of the old Testament. These are the last events of the old Testament. Malachi is the last prophet. So Malachi is alive around this time. He's, he's the one who's telling us what God is saying during this time. Okay. So we're essentially at the end of the old Testament. So both of those things are important for understanding this, this book accurately. The Ezra and Nehemiah are one book together and it's essentially the end of the Old Testament. These are the last events in the Old Testament, okay? So, if we're at the end of the Old Testament, did that in the first service, scared me. Um, where was I? Okay, so um, I get distracted really easily. Um, so, at, at the end of the, if we're at the end of the Old Testament, then it's helpful to remember how we got here, right? So, let's real quick take like a five-minute summary of how we got here in the, in the storyline of the Old Testament so far, okay? Remember, the Bible is ultimately one story, okay? I ask our students this all the time. Students should know the answer to this question. The Bible is ultimately how many stories? One, okay? It's, it's like you have a lot of sub-stories, but ultimately it is one story from Genesis to Revelation, okay? That's what this gospel thread series has been about. It's about tracing the storyline of the gospel throughout the whole Old Testament, okay? So how did we end up in Ezra and Nehemiah, okay? We started with a holy, eternal God who's completely self-sufficient, who creates the universe in order to display his glory and share it, okay? The crowning jewel of his creation is humanity. So he makes humans, male and female, to be in perfect relationship with him, right? So you've got Adam and Eve, the first humans, and God essentially, I'm paraphrasing, but essentially what he says to them is he says, I'm placing you in this land to rule over it and to live there in a, in a glad relationship with me, okay? But as humans, we foolishly chose to replace God with our own way. We wanted to be God and to rule our own lives, starting with Adam and Eve, and we've kept doing the same thing over and over again ever since, right? So Adam and Eve, they rebel, and so they are exiled or cast out of their land, okay? So then from Genesis 3 all the way through Genesis 11, you basically just see this spiral of, of humanity into further sin and rebellion. Then you get to Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, God calls a new couple. He calls Abraham and Sarah, and God essentially says to them, he says, I'm placing you in a land to rule over it and to live there in a glad relationship with me. So God, God tells Abraham that he's going to use Abraham's family to fix this whole sin problem for all humanity. The solution is going to come through Abraham's family. That's why from Genesis 12 on, it, it zooms in from all humanity into Abraham's line. That's why the rest of the Old Testament is about Abraham's family, the, the Jewish nation. Okay. But shortly after Abraham, they end up out of the land. They end up enslaved in, in Egypt. And while they're there, they grow from, from a family of like 70 or so into a family of over a million people. So now they're a small nation, okay? 
And then God miraculously uses Moses to miraculously save them and bring them out of slavery. And he brings them to the land that he had originally promised to Abraham. And God says to this whole nation, he says, I'm placing you in this land to rule over it and to live there in a glad relationship with me. You starting to see the pattern? Okay. So that takes us to the book of Judges. Okay. In the book of Judges, they finally made it to the land. And the book of Judges tells us that it ain't going so well. The book of Judges basically is just mass chaos. If you read through the book, it's just it, it, all sorts of chaos happening all over the place. Okay. You read some weird stuff in the, in the book of Judges. Okay. But you, you, it says that there's no unifying king to lead the people in obeying God. And everybody's just doing whatever they want in rebellion against God. That's the book of Judges. Okay. That brings us to the book of Samuel. Okay. First and second Samuel seeks to solve that problem. So the question that the book of Samuel asks is who is going to be this unifying king who's going to lead us in obedience to God? Who's going to be that king? So from the book of Samuel all the way through the book of Kings and the books of the book of Chronicles, you have this long line of kings from Saul to David to Solomon and so on. And none of them get it right. Not even David. If you read the life of David, David has a downfall just like Saul did. Okay. None of these kings get the job done. Some of them are better than others, but ultimately none of them can fix the sin problem. So Israel just keeps spiraling into rebellion against God. And all along the way, they have prophets who are telling them, you need to, you need to return to God. You need to repent. You need to return to God. And they ignore them. And so ultimately that leads to the Jews being exiled and cast out of the land, just like Adam and Eve were. So this starts with the northern, the northern Israelites are, are captured by the Assyrians and carried away. And then the southern Israelites are captured by, captured by the Babylonians and they're carried away. Okay? And then a few decades later, the Babylonians are captured or overtaken by the Persians. That's where we pick up in Ezra and Nehemiah. Is the people are still in exile, but now the Persians have taken over from uh, the Babylonians. Okay? So that brings us to this book. Now, something else historically to understand what's going on at this time is when the Persians take over from the Babylonians, they have a different philosophy on how to uh, manage or handle captured peoples like the Jews. The Jews weren't the only people that were captured, but groups like this, they had a different philosophy. The Babylonian philosophy was we need to indoctrinate our captives. In other words, we need to rip them out of their homes and bring them to Babylon. And we need to strip away their, their national identity, strip away everything about them and make them Babylonian. Okay, so this is what happens with, if you remember with Daniel and Meshach and Shadrach and Abednego, right? They, they were young Jewish men who got ripped from their homes by the Babylonians. And the Babylonians tried to strip away everything that was Jewish about them. Okay, and then they tried to make them Babylonian. Okay, remember that because that's going to come up later in the story. Okay, the Persian philosophy was different. The Persians said, we want to return captives. So that what the Persians is, they take over and they actually send back captive groups like the Jews back to their own lands. Not only do they send them back to their own lands, they're, gonna, they're like, hey, we're still in charge, but you can go back home. And not only that, we want you to go back and restore your own culture and identity. Okay? So God is, at this point in history, he's sovereignly moving in the hearts of pagan Persian kings to return his people to their land. Okay? So what's the book of Ezra and Nehemiah about? This book is about three waves of exiles that return to the land of Israel, okay? And they're going back in order to rebuild and restore what they had lost, what had been destroyed, okay? And FYI, from the beginning of Ezra to the end of Nehemiah, it takes place over about 100 years. So this isn't overnight. This is a long process of over 100 years, okay? So you have these three waves, and they're led by, by three different leaders. We're going to look at each one of their stories just really briefly, okay? You might have guessed that two of the leaders are Ezra and Nehemiah. But there's another leader that comes before them. His name is Zerubbabel, which is a mouth, it's a mouthful and it's also a great baby name, um, especially if your last name is Zortman. Um, 
so, uh, so you have these three leaders. So Zerubbabel, he goes back to restore the temple in Jerusalem. Ezra goes back to restore the law in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah goes back to restore the walls in Jerusalem. Okay, so that's what's going on. So let's look at each one of these leaders briefly and understand their story and then talk about why this matters to us. Okay, so first, Zerubbabel. So you read about his story in Ezra chapter 1 through 6. Okay, so this guy's kind of an unsung hero of or an unsung character of, of the book. Why is this guy important? Well, for one thing, he's descended from David's kingly line. Not only that, he's actually the grandson, his grandfather was the king who surrendered to Babylon. So what that means is he should be the rightful king right now. If, if Israel had never gone into exile, this guy would be the king. Okay, so he's kind of a big deal. Also, you might have guessed, if he's descended from David, he has a pretty significant descendant, right? Jesus. So this guy that we're reading about, this Zerubbabel guy with a funny name, he's like the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus, Okay, if you go read Matthew's genealogy in Matthew chapter one, you find this guy's name. Okay, so he goes back and he goes back right after the Persians take over. So he goes back and he restores the temple. Why is that the first thing that they restore? Well, remember, God continually tells his people, I'm going to put you in this land to rule over it and to live there in glad relationship with me. Well, what's the symbol of God being a relationship with his people? It's the temple. So this symbolizes like God being with his people. So that's why they rebuild this first. So Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, I told you it was a mouthful. He leads a wave of exiles back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Okay? And they have some, some opposition and some difficulties along the way. It takes them about 20 years. But long story short, they get it rebuilt. Okay? There you go. I just summarized six chapters of the Bible for you in like 60 seconds. So, um, so Zerubbabel, like the, the temple's rebuilt now and everything seems like it's great right? Well, not quite for a couple of reasons. First of all, at one point when they're building the, the temple, they're having this celebration over the fact that they get to rebuild the temple. And there's this big celebration, but there are some older Jews in the crowd who are old enough to remember Solomon's original temple before it had been destroyed. And it, this was like a magnificent temple. They remember that one. And they're looking at this new one and they're weeping while everyone else is cheering. They're sitting there weeping. Because they're saying this, this isn't anything like the old temple. It's not anything like it, right? But that's not even, that's not even what's, actually, what's most tragic here, okay? Whenever, whenever they finish this temple, they have this dedication ceremony, okay? Now, there are two other dedication ceremonies before this in the Bible. One is in the book of Exodus whenever they build the, the tabernacle, okay? So if you remember, the tabernacle is like the early portable version of the temple, right? So they build it in, in the book of Exodus, and the, at the very end of Exodus, what happens when they dedicate the tabernacle is God's presence and God's glory visibly comes and fills the tabernacle that they just built. Imagine if you're a Jew standing there when this is happening. Like, you think that's a little confirming? I think so, right? Like, God visibly comes, God's glory visibly comes and fills the tabernacle, okay? Fast forward to when Solomon builds the first permanent temple. The same thing happens. At his dedication ceremony, God's presence comes and fills the temple visibly. This temple, that doesn't happen. They rebuild this temple. The thing that's supposed to represent God being with them and they don't see God's glory come and fill it. So as a reader, you're, you're looking at the story and you're like, okay, this seems like it's going good. And then it's like, wait, this doesn't seem quite right. Like there's something missing here, right? So that part of the book ends and it just leaves you on this cliffhanger of anticlimactic disappointment, okay? 
Then you move into Ezra's part of the story. Okay, so Ezra doesn't even show up until Ezra chapter 7. Like less, of, less than half of the book of Ezra is actually about Ezra. But Ezra shows up. Ezra returns to Jerusalem about 80 years after Zerubbabel first left. So there's a big chunk of time, okay? So he goes back. FYI, in that gap, that's where Esther's story happens. So that kind of helps you orient with where we're at in the storyline. Ezra goes back. And who is this guy? Who is Ezra? He's a scribe. What that means is he's an expert in the law of Moses, right? Nobody knows as much as Ezra does about how to keep and obey God's law, okay? So his goal is to go back and to restore the law in Jerusalem. Why? Why is that important? Okay, well, first of all, if the temple is, is the symbol of, God, of, of God's people being in relationship with him, then the law is how they're supposed to live while they're in relationship with him, right? So they go hand in hand. Right, so you you have all these Jews who are who are back there, and they're like, we don't know what we're like. We're supposed to be in a relationship with God, but we don't know how we're supposed to do that. We don't know how we're supposed to live this way. Secondly, remember what I said earlier that Babylon had stripped away the Jewish identity. They had stripped away. So you so you now have a generation of Jews who have no idea what it means to be Jewish. They they don't understand the the, the Jewish culture. They don't understand their own Jewish identity. So they need to be retaught it. So that's what Ezra's going back to do. So he returns. He teaches the law to the people and he restores their Jewish identity, okay? But then he also runs into an issue, okay? What he finds is whenever, whenever he gets back, he finds that some of the exiles who came back before him, they've intermarried with some uh, Gentile women, okay? Now, that in and of itself is not the problem, okay? Like there, there are several examples in the Old Testament of Jews marrying Gentiles. Joseph married a Gentile. Moses married a Gentile. Ruth and Rahab were Gentiles who married into the Jews. Like that's not the problem. What is the problem? is whenever Jews would marry spouses who worshiped other gods and they pulled their hearts away from the one true God. That's what happened with King Solomon, right? So that's the problem. So that's what Ezra's afraid of, okay? So he sees this situation. He's like, what should I do? His solution, he and the rest of the Jewish leaders, they come up with a solution and it is mass divorce. He basically says, hey, everybody, if, if all the, the Jewish men, if you uh, married a Gentile woman um, or, or like you now have to file for a divorce and send her away. Oh, and by the way, if you had any kids with her, you have to send them away too. Yeah, that's one of the parts of the Bible that is kind of uncomfortable when you read it, right? You're like, I don't know if I like this, right? Is this a good thing? Is this the solution that's supposed to happen? Well, no, a couple of things. First of all, Ezra is well-intentioned here, okay? But he thinks that two wrongs are gonna make a right and that's not how it works, right? Secondly, you know who never orders or endorses this? God. God. God never tells Ezra, hey, you're supposed to do this. Ezra, Ezra and the Jewish leaders, this is the solution that they come up with. So God never endorses this, right? So you have this mass divorce. It's not the proper solution, but that's what Ezra does. And then his part of the story ends. If you look in the, in the book of Ezra, that's the last thing that happens in the book of Ezra. So again, Ezra's part of the story ends on a cliffhanger of anticlimactic disappointment right? It's going really well so far, right? Well, that brings us to Nehemiah, okay? So as we read earlier, we find out that Nehemiah, he's a Jew still living in, in uh, Susa, which is the Persian capital, okay? And he returns to Jerusalem about 13 or 14 years after Ezra does, okay? So there's a little bit of a gap there, but uh, Nehemiah, he finds out, he knows that, that the temple has been rebuilt. He knows that Ezra's gone back to restore the law, but he finds out that something else is broken down. He finds out that the wall of Jerusalem is still broken down. Why is that a big deal? Because in ancient times, the way you protected your city was with a wall. So if you don't have a wall around your city, you're vulnerable to attack. 
which means that everything that's been rebuilt and restored up to this point is vulnerable. And Nehemiah knows if somebody comes in and attacks them, everything, my, my home's going to be destroyed all over again. It's all going to be, all the progress that they've made up to this point is just going to be stripped away, right? So that's why we find him weeping in, in the beginning of Nehemiah, right? So, uh, so he, he knows that this is a problem. So he, he, he talks with the king and the king allows him to go back. He actually gives him supplies to go back. So Nehemiah goes back and he leads this Jewish, uh, the Jewish people to rebuild the walls. And so like, this is the final piece in restoring Jerusalem, Right? Or at least they think. They think that, okay, now once we've got all this done, then everything's going to be great, right? So everything is fixed. Everything is rebuilt. Everything is restored. And it seems like it should be going well, right? Until you read the last chapter of Nehemiah. If you go, we don't have time to read it this morning, but it, just to summarize, if you go to the last chapter of Nehemiah, Nehemiah, this is several years later, and Nehemiah is returning from a trip back to Jerusalem. And when he comes back, he finds out that everything that they had rebuilt is now being neglected and desecrated all over again. Not by someone else, but by the Jews who were there and rebuilt it. He finds out that the temple that Zerubbabel had rebuilt is being neglected and treated cheaply. He finds out that the law that Ezra had restored is being neglected and disobeyed. And even the wall that Nehemiah himself built, even that's being used in, in all this sinful activity. Long story short, he basically, like there, there's sinful activity going on inside the walls of Jerusalem and he, he like scolds people, right? And he gets really mad. At one point he starts pulling people's hair out. Like the dude goes a little crazy, okay? But so he, he, he like gets mad at people and is like, you shouldn't be sinning inside the walls of Jerusalem. And so they, when he's not looking, they set up shop outside the walls of Jerusalem and do the exact same thing. So they're, they're like acting like, like kids or teenagers that look for a loophole in everything you say, right? Students in here, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Where, where it's like, you have to be very specific about what you're saying, right? Like he, he scolds them for doing this stuff inside the walls. And so they go outside and they're like, you never said we couldn't do it outside the walls. It's like, that's not the point, right? So you get to the end of Nehemiah and you find out that everything that they've rebuilt and restored is going down the drain. The book of Ezra and Nehemiah is all about rebuilding and restoring and making everything right, but everything they've rebuilt is falling apart all over again, okay? Here's the last part of Nehemiah. Here's how it closes out. It, it ends with Nehemiah crying out to God, and he, he I'm paraphrasing, but he, he basically says, God, I tried. Like, remember that I did my best. And then it ends. Like, the book ends. The last events that we have in the Old Testament, that's how it ends. So think about this. The last event in the Old Testament is human effort to fix the sin problem and it falls apart. Simultaneously, turn over, turn over to, to Malachi real quick. Malachi chapter four, the end of the Old Testament. Simultaneously, while all this is going on with Ezra and Nehemiah, this is what God is saying to his people, right? So Ezra and Nehemiah are the last events of the Old Testament. Malachi is the last prophet, okay? And, and he's alive around the same time, okay? Now, most of Malachi is, is Malachi calling out the same sinful activity that Ezra and Nehemiah saw, okay? But at the end, there's a glimmer of hope, okay? So this is, this is God speaking to his people around this time through Malachi. Okay, look at Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. God says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So basically what he says is in order to prevent you from being utterly destroyed, 
I'm going to send someone to fix this sin problem. But first, I'm going to send Elijah to prepare the way. Now, if you're a Jew at this time reading this, you're like, what? Because Elijah's been gone for hundreds of years by this point. Like he was way back in the book of Kings, right? So, so remember who Elijah is, okay? Elijah was this crazy fiery prophet in the book of Kings, okay? So he's a crazy wilderness prophet and he's living in the middle of nowhere. And the Bible tells us that, that he wears a robe of camel's hair and a leather belt. There's a weird detail to put in there, right? Like the Bible doesn't tell us most people's wardrobe, but for some reason it tells us that Elijah wears, wears uh, camel skin, camel hair, and a leather belt, Really weird detail, right? So the last thing that God says to his people in the Old Testament is that he'll send this crazy wilderness prophet wearing camel's hair and a leather belt to prepare the way for the one who's going to fix humanity's sin problem. And then God goes silent for 400 years. No prophets bring any messages from God to the people for 400 years. Generation after generation lives and dies without seeing that promise fulfilled. So now in your mind, fast forward 400 years, okay? Imagine that you are now a Jew living in Palestine, okay? And there is a new empire in charge of your land now. It's not the Persians anymore. Now it's the Romans. And you as a Jew, you know the Hebrew Bible. You know the entire Old Testament from Genesis all the way to Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi, and you wonder if you'll ever see God's solution for fixing humanity's sin problem. Your father never saw it. Your grandfather never saw it. Generations have never seen it. And you wonder if you'll ever see it happen. Then one day you overhear some people talking and it catches your attention. They say there's a crazy wilderness prophet out in the middle of nowhere. And he's preaching that people need to repent and turn back to God. And you're curious. So you, you ask him, what does this guy look like? And they say, well, he looks like a wild man and he doesn't have much fashion sense because he wears a robe of camel's hair and a leather belt. A wilderness prophet wearing camel's hair and a leather belt. It's a man who looks just like Elijah. And you know that the last thing that God said to his people 400 years ago is that he would send Elijah. And you ask what this guy's name is. They say, well, it's some, some dude named John. He's, he's out in the middle of nowhere. He's preaching and baptizing people. And so you go and you go check this guy out. He's out in the desert. And when you show up, he's telling everybody to, to repent and turn from their sin. And all of a sudden your heart starts beating faster. And you wonder, is this him? Is this the one who's going to fix our sin problem and make us right with God? Is he going to do what Ezra and Nehemiah couldn't? And about that time, as if he's reading your mind, John says, it's not me. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the one who can fix humanity's sin problem. But there's one coming after me whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. And whenever he says that, you're kind of confused because you're like, well, if it's not you, who's he talking about, right? Who in the world is he talking about? And you wonder who this other person could be. And, and you go home and you think about it all night long. And the next day you, you wake up and you decide you're going to go back out and you're going to hear this John preach again. See what else he has to say. So you go back out. But this day is different. Because while John is preaching, at one point, he sees somebody walking towards him. And he gets everybody's attention. He says, look, 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 look. That's him. That's him. It's him. That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one who can fix our sin problem and make us right with God. 
and he's pointing at Jesus of Nazareth. Now freeze that picture in your mind for a second. All of a sudden, you realize that in this moment, John is doing exactly what the entire Old Testament has been doing. He's pointing at Jesus. And he's saying, it's not about me, it's about him. He must increase and I must decrease. And as you start thinking through, in that moment, you start thinking through the storyline of the Old Testament. And everything starts to click. And you realize that every bit of this story has been pointing at this Jesus, just like John's doing now. You realize that in Genesis 3, God was pointing to Jesus as a serpent crusher. That Joseph was pointing to Jesus as the suffering savior. That Gideon was pointing to Jesus as the unexpected deliverer. That David was pointing to Jesus as the king who invites you to the table. That Elisha was pointing to Jesus as the cleansing for our sins. That Jonah was pointing to Jesus as the God who saves us instead of destroying us. That Esther was pointing to Jesus as our advocate who suffers to save us. That Ezra and Nehemiah were pointing to Jesus as the one who can truly restore us. And now John's doing the same thing. All the Old Testament is a gospel thread. It's one long continuous arrow continually pointing forward over and over and over and over and over. And now John is the final point. He's the final spearhead of that arrow where all this has been leading up to John literally physically pointing at Jesus and saying, that's him. Think about it. How fitting is it that as we wrap up this series that's been talking about all the Old Testament pointing to and anticipating Jesus, we're moving into Christmas, which is, that's exactly what we celebrate, right? So what's the takeaway, right? It's a nice story. What do we do? What are we supposed to do with this, right? Well, first of all, if you've never surrendered your life to this Jesus we're talking about as master over your life, then you're relying on human effort of some kind to fix your sin problem and to bring you fulfillment. You're relying on something else. Maybe you're running to success or respect from other people or a relationship or comfort or even religious effort to fix the problem. But Ezra and Nehemiah show us that all the human effort in the world can't fix the problem. It can't restore you. It can't satisfy you. It leaves you just as empty as you were before. The only one who can fix your sin problem and satisfy you is Jesus. The only answer is to surrender to him, admit that you can't fix it on your own, and throw the full weight of your faith on him as your savior. And he'll wash away your sin and make you completely new and whole. If you are a Christian, here's the question. What are you focused on? What are you pointing at? What do people see most of when they look at you? Listen, when people looked at John, they didn't see John. They saw Jesus. When people think of you, insert your name. When people think of you, what or who comes to mind first for them? When people think of you, do they think of your job? Do they think of your hobbies? Do they think of your family or your personality? Or do they think of Jesus? Which of those things are you known for most? We should be known more for who we're serving than for what we're doing. But a lot of us at Schindler Drive, and I'll include myself in this, we've gotten caught up in, in doing and doing and doing and doing and getting this done and getting that done. And just like the Jews in, in Ezra and Nehemiah, a lot of times we've missed the point. We've forgotten that no matter what we're doing, it's supposed to be pointing at Jesus and not us. Listen, it's not about what we're doing. It's about who we're becoming. And we're supposed to become more like Jesus. 
whatever your role is as part of this church and whatever you're doing the rest of the week, see Jesus and make him seen. See Jesus and make him seen. That's what the entire Old Testament does. That's exactly what John does. See Jesus and make him seen. Let's pray.